This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Hello everyone, welcome once again to Evidence for Faith, the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true. I'm Kirk Hastings, and Keith Kendricks is there somewhere. Are you there, Keith? I am. Hello there. How are you, Kirk? Good. Okay. Today's topic is a very interesting one. What we'll be talking about today, the Christian basis of Western civilization, is something that we've covered in previous podcasts, but I'm amplifying it and adding new data to it from a book that I recently read called Christianity on Trial, The Arguments Against Anti-Religious Bigotry by Vincent Carroll and David Shefflett. Right. So they have a chapter on Christianity and the foundation of the West that adds new information to some of the things that we've talked about in the past. So that's what we'll be doing today. Okay, that sounds good. We'd also like to remind you that uh, we'd like to say hello once again to the other radio stations that are running our program. Uh, of course, we originate from WIBG in Ocean City, New Jersey. But we also have uh, KXKS in Albuquerque, New Mexico, is running this program, along with WYYC in York, Pennsylvania, KLNG in Omaha, Nebraska, and KWDF in Alexandria, Virginia. That's quite a bit of coverage we have there. (laughs) Yeah, not too bad, huh? We're uh, on five stations now. Yeah, terrific. And also, if you'd like to listen to podcasts of previous programs, you can uh, listen to them on our website, which is located at www.evidencethenumber4faith.com. You can also listen to us on iTunes and the TuneIn Radio app. Is that right? I'm not up on my apps. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, the TuneIn Radio app. I yep, didn't know that. For iPhone or for iPods. Cool. And you can email us. If you want to email us questions or comments, you can email us at email at evidence4faith.com. So we have got quite a bit of coverage there. Okay. I have a quote of the week for us before we get started with you, Keith. All right. This is from Jeremy Taylor, who was a clergyman in the Church of England in the 1600s. He said that God has given to man a short time here upon earth, and yet upon this short time, eternity depends. Cool. Think about that. Absolutely. Yep. yep. We have to be careful with the time we're given. And that's what we, uh, we try to remind people about on this program. Absolutely. Okay. As I said, our topic today is a biggie, the Christian basis of Western civilization. Exactly. That's quite a claim. <laughs> Yeah, it is. Uh, where did Western civilization come from? How did it how did it grow? That's what we're going to look at today. There's a quote from this book that we mentioned, Christianity on Trial. It says, "The story of Christianity has sometimes been turbulent and tragic, blood splattered and cruel, but that is far from the sum total of its legacy. It also boasts magnificent redeeming achievements." 
Shining moments when civilizing values have seized the upper hand. These two must be remembered. So this is really a very good book. I highly recommend it. It covers, like as we said, this the foundation of civilization and how Christianity helped produce what we enjoy today in the West. But it also talks about Christianity and slavery in chapter two and chapter three. It's Christianity and science. Chapter four is Christianity and the slaughter of the innocents. Chapter five is Christianity and the Third Reich. Six, Christianity and charity. Seven is Christianity and the environment. And then eight is Christianity and American democracy. So it's, uh, I'm currently reading through it. So it's been, a, it's been a really enjoyable book. Keith, the question that comes to my mind while you were reading that information off is, uh, does this book distinguish between Christianity itself based on the, what the New Testament tells us? Or does it kind of include like church history, like Catholicism and uh, all the other church organizations? Yeah, it's a broad spectrum. So it would cover, I guess, what C.S. Lewis would call mere Christianity, okay. the Christianity that most people have believed in most parts of the world most of the time. So a broad, a broad look at the positive influences of Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant factions. Okay. Yeah. So it's not about denominations or anything like that. It's about Christianity overall. Yeah. In fact, they haven't really even mentioned much about denominations so far. Actually, so. when I was a new Christian uh, back in my mid-20s, that was something that I had to figure out, which was yeah. the difference between basic biblical Christianity and kind of church denominational Christianity. And I, at first I didn't realize they could be two different things. Right. Yeah, it's funny what some of the church splits have been about in the past. You know, some issues are as simple as things like, what's the proper way to do baptism? Right. And so there might be a new denomination formed uh, based on that. And then, of course, some issues are much more serious uh, what's the actual role of grace in salvation? Probably those, I would say, would be justified splits, where it's an important enough issue that if you differ on it, uh, there really can't be much communion or in common. But, right. but that's for us, for our purposes, that's neither here nor there. We expect that as you become a Christian, that you will learn about those things, and you will make the best decision that you can with guidance from the Holy Spirit as to what areas of doctrine you believe are more important than others. So, right, right. Aside from the essentials, you know, right. that, that we join all, need to all know Christians. The es- we all need to know the essentials. Exactly. Which is another that's thing. That's what makes that's, them essential. Yes. <laughs> and that's another thing that this radio program tries to do, is educate people point, on the essentials of Christianity. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to do, you were going to say, point out the obvious. <laughs> <laughs> that too. <laughs> Okay, this uh, I was reading uh, the notes that you gave me on this, and uh, this is really interesting, this part about the Dark Ages. You want to uh, go into that? Yeah, you know, you don't hear it used much, but you know, Kirk, when you and I were growing up, the Dark Ages was what the Middle Ages were called. Right. So this has changed, and I guess people, younger people don't even know that the Middle Ages were called the Dark Ages. Oh, because really? Nowadays, it's constantly called the Middle Ages. It's not called the Dark Ages. Okay. And 30 years ago, it was constantly called the Dark Ages and not the Middle Ages. 
But a lot of that is because of the advances in historical analysis and what's been put forward. So the Dark Ages term is really something that was coined back during the Enlightenment, and historical authors at that time were trying to denigrate the history of Christianity and the history of the Church, so they invented this term, the Dark Ages, to describe the progress from the fall of Rome to modern times. And of course, during the Enlightenment period, the reason it was called the Enlightenment is because they thought that they you know, were on top of the world with scientific advances and modernism and the Enlightenment approach to life, and so everything else to them seemed dark. Well, <laughs> after that phase passed, historians began to really re-examine things, and actually there was quite a bit of progress made during the Middle Ages until, you know, as the Middle Ages kind of rediscovered other parts of the world, China and India and Africa, it really found, by the end of the Middle Ages, they found that they were light years ahead. It was almost as if they were superior races, aliens from outer space, landing <laughs> in on a, on a planet of, of uh, you know, inferior beings. And so they were so far ahead that this is where colonialism comes from, because their weaponry, their transportation, their communication, everything was far superior than anything else in the world. Right. And all of that progress had been made during the Middle Ages. Yeah. So the uh, historians have really corrected this. It was it was a mistaken view, and it was initially intentionally done as a pejorative just to criticize religious people. I so, did not realize that. Yep. Of course, yep. like you say, I you know when I grew up, it was called the Dark Ages, and I was taught that it was simply because history and culture kind of went backwards a bit after the fall of Rome, that Greece and Rome, of course, were such impressive cultures that what followed that, you know... Was less so. Yeah, right. Yeah, and that's really a mistaken notion, and we're going to get into some of that in detail as to what Roman and Greek culture really was like, and so we'll see the comparison. There wasn't a... Of course, there was a degradation in political organization after the collapse of the Roman Empire. But other than that, culturally, things basically just continue to improve. You know, an interesting thing about this assertion of mine about the Enlightenment writers, the one of the things that you've heard is that people in the Middle Ages believed that the earth was flat and that Christopher Columbus was, (laughs) you know, they disagreed with Christopher Columbus because they thought the earth was flat and that he wouldn't be able to sail around it. He was going to sail off the edge of the earth. (laughs) Exactly. And that is all false. That was really made up. It was just a story made up. If I remember correctly, it was done by Washington Irving, who wrote about Christopher Columbus and made up this story. And it was part of the prejudice against the Middle Ages in the belief that they thought that the earth was flat. In fact, they didn't. They knew the earth was round. The earth had been known to be round from the time of the Greeks. Right. And even in books such as The Divine Comedy by Dante, you find references to a globe, to a round earth. And, of course, that was what Dante wrote in 1400s, I believe. So, it was well known. And, in fact, the reason... So if you're if you're interested then okay why was Columbus not believed when he said he could sail around the the globe why didn't they say oh yeah then go ahead the reason was that Columbus had made 
faulty mathematical analysis, and he believed that the Earth was much smaller than it actually was. So he never would have made it if there had been no United St- I mean, no Americas in between. He could not possibly have stored enough fresh water and food to have gotten there. Right. So it was actually lucky for him that the Americas were there because about the, the time that he thought he was going to get to the other side of, of, the, of the earth, to, to around to China, uh, he was running out of water and food. So, so the, he probably... The other, the other scientists, the other people in the Middle Ages, knew that the earth was much bigger than Columbus thought, and that, that's why they rejected his, his trip, because they knew it was impossible to get all the way around to China with as much food and water as they needed. Okay. So it was just a matter of distance, then, that they felt that he couldn't make it. Correct. That's exactly right. It had now, nothing to do with it. Nobody believed that the Earth was flat. It's been a few years since I've been in school. Uh, I'm not going to say exactly how many, but I don't remember. Uh, do they teach, like, what did uh, Columbus think when he hit the uh, uh, the islands of the Caribbean was where he landed first? Is That's that right. right? Did he yeah, think he that he, he was, was at China? Yes, he thought he was on islands off the mainland of China. In fact, he went back... <laughs> three times, I believe, and each of those times it was to look for the mainland. So he thought that he was in islands off of China. Okay. (laughs) So, so, uh, in fact, he looked for the the con, you know, uh, that you you hear about in the the writings of Marco Polo. Right. The emperor, the con, he was looking for the con and gave instructions to his sailors and when they would go out on scouting parties as to what to do and what to say if they ran into the con. Right. So, still, though, you know, this prejudice against the Middle Ages, there still is some of that today. And you do hear occasional references to the Dark Ages. And, and part of that carries over to some of the animosity that there is amongst academics and other college-educated people. Studies have really shown that there is a lot of animosity towards fundamentalists and evangelicals, and there's really an anti-Christian bigotry that goes along with this concept of thinking of, you know, that they're middle age, you know, dark ages, this is, you know, concepts from the dark ages and things like that. Right. So, one of the things we want to do today is really correct some of the false notions that are out there and show that Christianity isn't something that was left behind by modern people and kind of just has been dragged into the modern world, but actually Christianity established the modern world and the principles that guided Christian leaders, thinkers, and teachers actually developed into the what we call basically civilization or Western civilization. That's pretty amazing stuff. Yep. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, and I'm Kirk Hastings. I'm Keith Kendricks. So, let's continue with this. Uh, You have some notes here about some of the great ideas that Christianity has given us that have changed history. Why don't you go into some of those? Okay, well, yeah, that's a, a good starting place. Concepts, and people don't really realize that these concepts are linked to Christian ideas, but we'll flesh that out as we go along and unpack some of that, and you'll see where we get this view from. I I have to admit, when I was looking over these notes that you gave me, I was amazed at the number of ideas that we take for granted today that actually came from Christianity. Exactly. Yeah, things like limited government, uh, religious tolerance, 
human dignity and equality, the value of human life, individual freedom. Right. Things that we take so much for granted as Americans and people also living in the West, like West uh, Europe and, and other areas, Canada and South America. And yet those are all ideas that stem from the development of Christian ideas down through time. It's not like these are specifically written in verses in the Bible. You do see many of the beginnings of it, but as the Bible was used and applied to these different areas of life, politics, economics, uh, labor, these views basically fell out of or came out of Christian concepts. Well, looking over this list, you, you can, if you think about, you know, the way the Roman Empire was structured, these were not popular ideas back then or in most of the cultures before them. That's right. That's right. But some of this you can even think about in examples of the great works of art, the great works of Western music, the great works of Western architecture. All of those areas were overwhelmingly influenced by Christian themes. I mean, these were Christian artists working to glorify God. And in Western civilization, they reached the epitome, the peaks in these fields, and much, much further than the rest of the world. So let's let's look at some of the political ideas that we mentioned. All right. Did democracy come from Christianity? Well, the Greeks like to say that they founded democracy, right? Right, I've heard that. Yeah, but if you look at the democracy that they had, we would actually call it today, we would call it aristocracy. That is, it was the rule by the elite, okay, the wealthy. In Greek democracy, landowners, the wealthy families, were the ones who could vote. And there wasn't any concept of slaves voting or poor voting or just being a member of society voting, no, you had to be wealthy, you had to be part of the aristocracy. Right. So, although it was definitely an advance, I mean, sure, it's better than, you know, a dictator, a king, or something like that. It's a great advance, but really, it's a way for those who had power in the time to share the power. So, it became an aristocracy. You don't really see the first universal suffrage or universal right to voting until you get to the Benedictine monasteries during the Middle Ages, in which every person who was in the monastery had an equal vote, including the head monk, the one who was running the monastery. He only had one vote, hmm. and everyone else also had one vote. So that's actually in history the first time that you see universal voting rights. Wow. <laughs> I never so, thought about that. Yeah. You have uh, in these notes here, you mentioned that there's a reason why Parliament is right next to Westminster Abbey, if I can say that right. Yeah, that's right. Westminster Abbey. Because of the connection between church and state, is that right? No, what it is is that the uh, voting method, the the parliamentarian voting method was copied after Westminster Abbey. Oh, okay. So they just continued on as, you know, they developed the state government in England, they just continued it on and did it like the monks did it. So, Wow. Yeah, pretty interesting, huh? Now, this is really interesting, too, that you uh, have in these notes here that monasteries developed capitalism. That's right. Yeah, that the, I've never heard before, either. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Yeah, that. This is a very interesting, if you think about how our economic 
ideas developed, our ideas of work, the dignity of work. You've heard of, I'm sure, the Protestant work ethic. Oh, yeah. And even before Protestantism, Catholicism believed in a sacred work, you know, that work was a way that you could express your worship of God. But Protestantism really developed it much further. And the Protestant countries began to really grow economically because people were believing that doing a good job could be a way of worshiping God. Mm -hmm. But it was other things, other economic issues like new technologies that made a difference. Things like mills to grind corn, plowing, simple things, simple aspects of life like that managers would be promoted based on merit. You know, that was a Christian idea. You don't just arbitrarily choose someone or someone because they're your family member. They actually had to do a good job. Or like in uh, ancient cultures, you didn't become a manager because you killed the manager before you. (laughs) Right. That's right. (laughs) And, you know, in monasteries, they had to write things down. They had to keep records of what was going on. So they developed accounting practices. You know, much of what we do in bookkeeping today was actually developed in monasteries and they developed a lot of the economic ideas that we have today. And capitalism spread to cities throughout Europe and there was a lot of advancement. There were a lot of technical innovations like clocks, uh, reading glasses. So, you know, there wasn't this stagnation. There wasn't this dark ages where nothing happened. In fact, much progress was made. All of these things were not available in the Roman Empire, but they were available in the Middle Ages. In fact, some of these monasteries became so rich because of their work and their efforts that they began to loan money out. And they would even loan money to cities (laughs) to fund things like hospitals and you know, other charities, and they became basically the first international banks because they were willing to loan money across international lines. Wow. So, you know, it's uh, very, very interesting how you can trace the development of economic thought in the modern world back to the Middle Ages, back to Christian concepts. Well, I do remember learning that in school when I was growing up, how intelligent and organized these monks in the monasteries were and how they kept records of everything and um, how they actually were responsible for preserving a lot of the books and the culture. That's right. From, like, the Roman Empire and, you know, the 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 Greeks and everything because the barbarians came in and were burning and destroying everything. It was the monks in these monasteries that kind of caused these things to be preserved. That's right. Yep, absolutely right. Even now, let's go on to another idea that people don't often associate with Christianity, and that's the concept of the separation of church and state. That's a surprise. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Initially, the church, as it began to grow, it, it found itself at odds with the state, and so there was a separation because there were battles of control and the early popes used their leverage to say that, you know, there's, we're responsible for the religious part of people's lives and we will not bow our knee to the state. So they rejected the idea that the state ought to have power over the church. Right. And then of course, the emperors didn't really want to be controlled by the church either. So there was this battle going on, this separation 
idea finally came after much fighting and uh, finally came to be an established principle. So if you think about other types of religious views of the past, like Islam or Confucianism in China, these all created theocracies. They were economically, they were command economies. So it was top down where, you know, the boss, the church and the state would tell the economy what to do. Right. This is much like Marxism. This is why these areas failed in the past and Marxism failed today, recently, because of this top-down economic model, which just doesn't work. Right. Liberty is what works, and separation of powers is what works, and keeping the power in the hands of the individual. So, you, we see historically that China, uh, the Middle East, uh, really didn't have any dynamic economies. And so, even though there were the occasional breakthrough, something in algebra or the invention of gunpowder, you really saw no terrific developments of civilization because they simply were going about things the wrong way. Well, it's pretty easy even today. If, if you look around the globe at the different countries, the difference between the, the countries that have like a Christian background are the ones that practice this separation of church and state idea. But then you have the other countries like the communist countries and the Marxist countries and even the Islamic countries, which... You know, the idea of church and state being separated doesn't mean anything to them. It's all one thing to them. Right, exactly. So everything is controlled from on high. Everything is a theocracy. It just doesn't work that way. So well, many people might be surprised to find out that the ACLU did not invent the separation of church and state. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, that's right. Yeah, it's a, Christian, it's a Christian idea. It was put into the Constitution in the way that we interpret it. It doesn't mean that the church has to have nothing to do with the state, it means that they have their own separate roles and neither one should be trying to take over the other one. Right. Like you see today where the state is trying to take over the church and saying you know, that we will tell you when you can pray and when you can't pray. Right. You know, um, well, that's really, that's the same thing as the separation of powers in the American government. The three sections of government are separated and... Yep. You know, that, that works fine, and that's supposed to be the same way with religion. Well, let's jump over some of these other uh, ideas that we could, because only because we have talked about some of these in the past, and if we have more time, we'll come back to these. But some of the other ideas that helped build Western civilization was the belief in reason that drove the scientific revolution. So... Christianity really was responsible, and many authors have written on this. There are many books that have been written by historians that show that Christianity laid the framework and the foundations for science. Christians built the first universities. It's true that there were some early teaching institutions in other countries, but they never developed into anything, and they never were really truly universities where all aspects of thought were brought into one place. There might have been a place to teach doctors. That, that was in the past. And there were places where religious training took place. But nothing that expanded and, and really took hold. So, but it really did in, in the West, in, in Christian countries. Well, it makes perfect uh, sense to me that uh, a lot of the early scientists were Christians because they, because they believed in God, they believed 
that there was an orderly, predictable universe that they could study and understand. Absolutely. And Christianity, one of the ways that it helped to build Western civilization was its call to common moral standards. You know, and those moral standards, as they were applied more and more consistently, led to things like the end of slavery and the advancements of women's rights. Right. Let's get into how this happened then. How did this historically begin to happen? So we've got to go back to early Rome and the time uh, that Christianity was beginning to spread. And one of the main things that helped begin to change things in the Roman Empire was the concept of the equality of rights, all right? This was mm-hmm. not something that the Roman world appreciated, no. an equality of rights, that everyone should be treated equally because they were creations of God. No, because most most countries were ruled by either emperors or dictators or tyrants or whatever. And That's you know, right, and it was simply ruled by might. Right. The strong dominated the weak, and that was simply the way it was. Might made so, right. <laughs> Might made right. So if you were a man, you were stronger than a woman, you could beat her up, and that was your right to do that. It was simple power. Right. Uh, Children had no rights. Obviously, they were the weakest of all. Right. But listen to this quotation from Clement of Alexandria that he wrote around 200 AD, and you'll get a flavor for what was going to come later because he talks about this Christian concept of equality of rights. He says, quote, both slave and free must equally philosophize, whether male or female in sex, whether barbarian, Greek, slave, whether an old man or a boy or a woman. And we must admit that the same nature exists in every race and the same virtue, close quote. That now, sounds like that comes straight out of the New Testament, where Jesus taught that uh, whether you're a slave or free or male or female, it's all the same to him. That's right. That's Paul in Galatians. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. And so it does stem directly from the New Testament, from the teachings of Paul and Clement. So you have here Clement describing the rights of men, women, boys, slaves, even every race— were all equal in the eyes of God. They were all given minds to philosophize with. They were all called to live holy lives, to have to live in virtue. So there was this equalizing effect of Christianity, so much so that even if a Christian family had slaves to help them with their farms or their household, they would actually eat food with the slaves. Their slaves would have dinner with them. That's how much they treated people as equals. Hmm. So this idea of equality of individuals then led and developed to an equality before the law. So you see how if people are equal, then the law ought to treat everyone as if they are equal. And thus we have the idea in this country today of equal justice under law. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. And it developed into our Western legal tradition, which recognizes individual rights, and it leads, it led right up to modern democracy. So, was modern democracy explained in detail in the New Testament? No, it wasn't. But it did develop directly out of the teachings of the New Testament. 
Right. So very interesting. Uh, let's take a little look more in depth into women's rights. All right. Some of the things that atheists like to throw at Christians is that they're misogynistic, right? We hate women. We won't <laughs> let women be priests. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, well, first of all, that's not true. There are many churches that allow women to be pastors. But even if you're a denomination that doesn't, still the advancement of women, and, you know, we do believe in different roles for men and women. It's not just because men and women are equal doesn't mean they have to always do exactly the same thing. Right. Just as in the United States, under the Constitution, the separation of powers, each of the three powers are equal, but they don't do the same thing. Right. Right? The courts do their thing, the legislators do their thing, and the administrator, the president or the governor, he does his thing. They're still equal, but they have separate roles. And right. this is the kind of balance, the more nuanced way of looking things. One of the problems that I have with atheism is that it's so black and white. You know, it's so intolerant. It, it has to be one way or the other. There can't be some kind of a more integrated evolved, advanced way of looking at things. You know, a man and woman have to do the same things. They have to change the same number of diapers. They have (laughs) to wash the same number of dishes. They have to go to work for the same number of hours. It just ain't necessarily so. Right. You know, what, I mean, uh, even science has shown this. Brain studies have shown that a woman responds differently to the cry of a baby. Her brain actually works differently when she hears the cry of a baby than a man's brain does. Uh-huh. That gives her an incredible advantage than a man has when taking care of children. Right. So, so it's just you know, idiotic and so simplistic, so black and white and unsophisticated to believe that equality of women means that women have to do everything that a man does. Right. So. This early development of the idea of women's right, you can imagine the first two centuries of Christianity, it was spreading across the globe, it was appealing to the lower classes, but it was especially appealing to women. So even though for men, it was mostly in the lower classes, you would see men as joining the church, there was a special appeal to women to join the church. And so you would find more women than men in the early church, and you would find women of the upper classes too. So women of all levels of society were joining the church. And really, this has to go back, Kirk, like you said, to the teaching of Paul in Galatians 3.28. The church, that the New Testament very clearly says that all are equal in Christ. And that was a very radical idea when Paul first said that. Absolutely a radical idea. Yeah. The Romans were like, what do you mean we're all equal? female. Yeah, the Romans were like... before Christ and were drawn together and unified in Christ. Yeah. So women who were Christians and women who had Christian husbands and Christian families recognized a really marked increase in their status and in their autonomy that was unlike the women in the pagan society around them. Here's a a quote from Rodney Stark, historian Rodney Stark, who talks about the fact that pagan women were, quote, three times as likely as Christians to have married before age 13. 
Whoa. <laughs> so, you know, in the pagan world, girls were property, and yep. a father would just marry them off and try to get as much money as he could for them. Yep. And, and you know, they were bargaining chips that were used to strike deals. There are still cultures around today that kind of tend to do that, aren't there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Non-Christian societies, we might say politely. <laughs> here's, a, here's another quote from Regine Pernot. She says, quote, It is an established fact taken from simple evidence that everywhere progress in free choice of a spouse accompanied progress in the spread of Christianity. So this was an early Christian concept that women were free to choose whom to marry and could not be treated like property mm-hmm. and given away or sold to a future husband. Mm-hmm. Here's another quote from historian Thomas Cahill. He says Paul gives, quote, the only clarion affirmation of sexual equality in the whole of the Bible and the first one ever to be made in any of the many literatures of our planet. So really, this is your first absolute statement of the rights of women. Wow, interesting. Yeah. So what we see is the slow adoption. You, you get the establishment of Christianity as a legal religion with Constantine becoming emperor, and you begin to see the slow improvement of virtues and morals of the of the people even there's a historian many people have heard of edward gibbon who wrote the decline and fall of the roman empire right a very famous multi-volume series right of the history of rome well G- gibbon is often criticized for his anti-christian remarks and his uh mistreatment basically he historically did not treat christianity accurately when he talks about them but even he had to concede what he called the quote pure morals unquote as one of the reasons for the remarkable growth of christianity before constantine and you do find historically not only converts to christianity talking about the better virtues of the Christian church, but you also see critics of Christianity talking about the advanced um, morals of the church and the better virtues that they showed, and those virtues began to become adopted. Hmm. So one of the ways that you see that is in the idea of gladiatorial games. I mean, we've heard about gladiatorial games, and you get, you see movies, you know, where couple of gladiators come out and they fight together with swords or nets and, you know, that kind of thing, armor. Mm-hmm. You kind of think of it, well, it was kind of a more advanced boxing match type of thing, but really it wasn't. It was really a very brutal, horrible, disgusting, really, people were getting titillated by watching the brutal murders of scores of people. Sometimes they would have big events where actually hundreds of people were slaughtered right in front of them. Right. And this was, you know, it wasn't like the dregs of society were going there. These were the upper crust, you know, the best and brightest of the Roman Empire went to these kinds of things. So it wasn't until they were completely outlawed by Constantine 
that it began to to fall into disuse, even though he had a lot of trouble trying to get rid of it because it was still practiced in many places, even though it had been outlawed. Right. Now we just watch this stuff on TV. <laughs> yeah, you know, of course, and I guess we rationalize it that it's fake and, you know, but yeah, you can imagine if you saw it really happening right in front of you and people were, were cheering about it. Yeah. yeah, it reminds me a little bit. Of course, it's not nearly this, the same or as bad. Going to a hockey match and seeing you know guys bash into each other and everybody starts yelling "fight, fight!" and then they would right. so then they, you know or punch him, punch him, you know, and then they, a fight would break out and they're all screaming "yay!" you know, or even boxing. I've I've been to a couple of boxing matches. Yeah, you know, what'd you think? And you know, we were sitting like right next to the ring. And it's really a totally different experience to see it in, you know, live than to like watch it in a Rocky movie or something. You, mm-hmm. y- you can almost feel the punches when you see these guys hitting one another, <laughs> and their sweats That's flying on you, and you know everything else. And it's it, it's like it's it really is kind of a brutal experience. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, ama- to me it's amazing that people can actually enjoy that. But you can imagine that if that's the way society is and People actually enjoyed watching other other people be slaughtered or fed to animals. Right. Really, really sickening. Now, another area that Christians made big advances was in rejecting the Roman practice of infanticide. And, you know, they would kill, kill unwanted babies. They would abandon them in forests or they would just simply dump them on a dung heap. Right. And that was common practice. Boys were disposed of if they were deformed. Girls were disposed of if you simply didn't want them. Yeah. You know, they, it was one, one mouth too many to feed. Okay, they just would cart them off and leave them on a trash heap. Right. Well, even, they, the Greeks, you know, even the Greeks practiced that, especially the Spartans. Yep. If a, when a baby was born, uh, you had to take it to the king, and the king had to look him or her over and if there was any blemish or weakness or whatever, then they would just leave them out in the wilderness to die. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we hear about it, you know, today in society, we're outraged by it, and we hear about babies, the occasional baby that's found in a dumpster or something. Yeah. And, you know, we seek out the person and try to prosecute them. But can you imagine what it would be like if that was an accepted practice today? I mean... Yeah, you know, you'd be finding babies all the time. You'd be passing by a dumpster and hearing the cries of a child. Yeah. So, really, really sickening. It's really helpful sometimes to really think about how far we've come uh, yes. based on Christian moral values than the way the world used to be hundreds or thousands of years ago. And we know historically that in the Mediterranean region, the there were it's known that there were 30% more males than females simply because of this practice and very few families actually would raise a second girl they might raise the first one but uh, there just wasn't much point to second or third girls there's an interesting example of a letter of a husband to his wife that was written right about the time of Christ where it says quote if you are delivered of a child if it is a boy, keep it. If it is a girl, discard it. <laughs> and then he goes on to talk about other things. So he didn't even have to justify it. 
He didn't have to say why this was an okay thing to do. He just said, do it. Yeah. And it was just simply an expected part of society that people did this. The unfortunate thing is, uh, according to modern studies, there are modern countries, because of abortion, the same thing is happening again. That there's right. very... Yeah, well, China, the abortion for rates thing, I, for for girls are very unbalanced. It's many more yep. girls than boys are being aborted. That's right, and China has a problem with too many males. Yeah, I remember reading a story about a Chinese woman that had immigrated to the United States, and she was sick. Went to a doctor. They took X-rays, and they found twenty-two pins in her body. Pins. These, uh, yeah, um, needles. 22 needles in her body. Okay. Guess how they got there? I have no idea. Acupuncture? Her parents, parents, yeah, a form of acupuncture. Her parents would stick needles into her body to try to kill her. Really? Yeah. So they would put a needle, stick a needle into her abdomen. She didn't die. So later they would stick another needle into her. My God. Didn't die. Later stick another needle into her because if she died they would be they would have been allowed to have another child so uh, she wound up living with 22 needles 22 murder attempts so really amazing and that's the kind of thing that goes on in China because of their communistic top down rule wow but other areas there were other areas in which Christian morals were adopted pedophilia was very commonly practiced in Greek and Roman times. Christians had an incredibly elevated concern for the poor that was adopted. There's even an example of an early Christian tombstone that has the the writing on it that said, lover of the poor. Hmm. Now, never before in history had any tombstone ever been inscribed with that kind of thing, lover Hmm. of the poor, not until Christianity came along. Wow. Uh, Another thing that Christianity did is it exalted humility and it preached charity and love. And these things were really foreign to the Roman world. I mean, they thought that that was a weakness. Humility and showing mercy was just something not done. It was immoral, in fact, to do that. But Christianity changed all that. Right. And Kirk, before we end, Really, we need to stress the point that Christianity can renew Western civilization today. We can raise the values back again to have a love of life, to reject a a death society and advance a love of life, looking at all life to be created by God and equal. And we can restore the kind of prosperity that Christianity gave to the West, that we don't need to continue in decline as we are. We need to become Christians if you're not a Christian. You need to read the scriptures. You need to adopt Christian ideas, Christian morals. You need to teach these to your children. And we really can, we really do have the opportunity to restore not just the United States, but the whole world to an advanced society, an advanced economy, and the kind of life that really has been unparalleled anywhere else in the world. Okay. On that note, uh, join us again next week. And remember, the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.